Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the May 4th, 2015 edition of the Heretics Hour. I'm Carolyn Yeager, and my guest today is the brilliant Nicholas Collistrom, and we're going to be discussing his new book, Breaking the Spell, Holocaust, Myth and Reality. Welcome to the program, Nick. Well, it's a great privilege to be on your Heretics Hour, uh, Caroline. Well, it's a great privilege for me to have you here, and I hope we're going to have a great show because I know you've already been on several radio shows, and uh, because your book's been out what for a couple of months now? Yeah, a few months. Yeah, it's it is selling well, and uh, Grandma Rudolph says he's very pleased uh, to have a, a revisionist book that is doing well, uh, and uh, it's 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 in getting a, reaching a different kind of market than usual revisionist books. So oh, I'm, I'm quite. I was going to yeah. ask you about that. Yeah. Tell us more about that. What is it? How is it reaching a different markets? And then we'll have to discuss about your book. Why that would be so? Well, I've, I've just reviews it's got like Occidental Observer that that uh, got a nice review in, in that magazine and uh, different people are posted because I'm sort of known a bit in conspiracy theory world. See, I, I do stuff on 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 modern conspiracy theory and uh, that is generally rather sort of left-wing uh, left-wing types do get involved with conspiracy theory and um, what we'd call revisionism is much more traditionally right-wing and, and I'm trying to you know, sort of develop a an approach to this subject that, that is basically not not political it's, it's, it's a search for what happened in World War II in the past uh, and, and it, this, this search cannot be labelled with any, you know, with any political um, uh, label put in it, which is what people always try to do. And, and um, so I feel that um, it is getting through to uh, some more general readership. I mean, it's not like there's any printed media where review it. I mean, I think from that point of view, it's beyond the pale, you know. Uh, there's no newspaper or journal in print that will review it. But it is getting nice comments on the web. Well, yes, and of course, your, your, your previous book that you alluded to was, I think, titled 7-7. Terror on the Tube, Terror on the Tube, Terror yes. on the Tube, that's right. About, about who did the London bombings. 
And that came out in 2009. Yeah. Yeah, and you've been quite well known since then. And since then, you, you started looking more into Holocaust. Is that right? Well, that's, uh, that was going on a bit the same time as I was doing that last book, which people found rather confusing. But I got chucked out of my college in 2008 because of some things I'd written about, um, residual cyanide in the walls of German labor camps. And, uh, uh, and, and that suddenly was a, an, an involuntary turning point in my life because everybody uh, ethically damned me then and, and uh, being thrown out of my college Suddenly, I'd been a science historian, and I couldn't be that any longer because no academic journal would touch my stuff. And, and uh, so the idea was that I'd be finished, that, that when you're rejected by the powers that be and accused of being a Nazi, you know, a Holocaust denier, an anti-Semite, when you get those labels hurled at you, that, that you don't come back again. You can't ever get employed again. Uh, and, and uh, you can't ever um, get a publisher or anything. And, and uh, so that's usually regarded as some irreversible ruin. Partly that I am quite uh, sort of elderly, and so I'm in a sense I'm pensioner, uh, and in a sense I'm not that bothered at being unemployable. But uh, uh, I feel I have, I have sort of recovered a bit from that. Uh, well, right. I was going to just ask you, uh, because I know you write about this very in a very interesting way in your book. It's, it's fascinating to read about it. Uh, it, it. It's a big story in itself, how they um, stop people from looking into this. And so you were in good standing in, uh, in the academic world, in the academy, and uh, just overnight because of one paper that I guess the paper did get published, right? Well, it's on Codor. It's actually... Two or three papers I've published on in CODOR uh, on the subject of you know chemical analysis basically of Lewis and Germain Rudolph and uh, I thought the 20th anniversary of, uh, of Fred Leuter's work was coming up and, and this might be you know something significant and um, it turned out that 20th anniversary was me being thrown out of my college. Um, so if you had just maybe you just went a little too far and I suppose associating yourself with uh, CODOR committee. Uh, on uh, open debate on the Holocaust was too much for them. Huh? It was, yeah, yeah. There was no discussion at all, no debates. Uh, I couldn't talk with anyone about it. I'd been connected with the college for 15 years, mm-hmm. and I was a member of staff. But suddenly, I was told that I was thrown out, and, and uh, the newspapers were damning me, and uh, blogs were griping at me, and um, it, it was obviously it was a very difficult period. Yeah. But uh, my, my feeling is that the, the climate of opinion has changed now, that people uh, are willing to talk about the subject and, and are grateful to have been able to talk about it. Because we've been told for so long that we're not allowed to talk about it and we just have to believe it. Uh, and I think more and more people are coming to realise actually we would like to be able to talk about it, you know. Well, what about your friends in, in, uh, in the academic world that uh, felt they had to distance themselves from you immediately without even talking yeah. to you about it? Uh, have any of them come back round, or has any of that uh, lightened up or changed? No, no, I don't think so. I think I, that was very traumatic. I, I lost whatever friends I got in academic and uh, astronomical world. I was a historian of astronomy, uh, and uh, so that's, that's kind of gone suddenly. Um, in fact, there was quite a funny sequel to this, Caroline, that um, I was 
uh, I, I, a big encyclopedia with reviews in an American history of science journal called ISIS, the most prestigious journal. And I've got a, a, a biography in it. See, I've done a biography of several, including Isaac Newton. And so this review of the book spent, uh, this review spent half the review damning me and saying how awful it was that they'd included me in it. And um, the whole thing should be pulps taken back to publish on pulp because it got me in it and, and this was some Jew reviewing it called Swerdlow right mm -hmm. and, and he thought he could just demand that this whole very prestigious encyclopedia was taken back and pulped and um, as it happened the editor resisted that and then Jim Fetzer my friend Jim Fetzer who by the way did a lot helping me to recover from the ethically damned condition I was in. He really was prepared, to, keen on doing dialogue and discussions with me. Mm -hmm. I think that helped, helped a lot. Good old Jim. And um, he and I wrote to all of the staff, members of staff of the American Society of History of Science, uh, deploring this uh, and saying that it wasn't the right way to behave. And not a single one of them replied. So I think there's considerable academic timidity. Yeah, I say considerable. Right, yeah. they're, they're scared to death. They just they know they can't even touch it. Now, uh, well, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, Jim Fetzer wrote a very good introduction to your book. Right. Um, I I was impressed by it, and I thought it, it set just the right tone. Well, exactly. I mean, a professor of logic goes through some of the central issues is really quite something, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, and that helps to avoid having the book dismissed as far right or you know. Um, because what they try and say is like a spell. It is a spell. The spell they cast is saying anyone who believes this is secretly a Nazi, you know, secretly far right. And that is like a spell. And I started off trying to believe in science and rational argument. And look, we've got measurements of cyanide here, iron cyanide, and measurements there. And more and more, you come to realise that uh, this is especially over the years when I was chucked out, Caroline. It's like there's some enchantment that everyone's under. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was going to say that uh, one of the things I liked right off the bat was the title, Breaking the Spell. I thought it was quite brilliant of you to use that title. And, you know, I, I like that phrase. I used it myself a year, between a year or two years ago, something like that, in an article, mm -hmm. a couple of articles that I wrote at uh, Ellie Weasel Khan's World. Uh, yeah. I had the same idea that that some of this information will break the spell. It can break the spell. Yeah. Everything you've got in your book is, is so excellently put together that I, you know, my, my feeling when I'm reading it is that if anybody, anybody who reads this will be convinced will not be able to, will not be able to hold on to the, any ideas that they had before because it's doing such a great job of, of breaking through that, those untruths and so on. But, and I've been I've been thinking about this before before we uh, got together here, Nick. Right. Why people why they don't and I say it's because they won't read it. They don't even want to read it. I mean, people won't look at this information because they don't want to change their mind. They're they're happy with where they are. Well, the fact right. that your academic community they know that their jobs depend on it. And so they don't want to have their mind changed. And I think most of the people don't even, won't even read it and won't even look at it. Because if they, and if they did, they would have to. It would break through to them. Something would break through. But do you think they automatically would lose their jobs? I mean, is there some slight thing they could do or doubt or question? 
Or do you think any any doubt they just lose their job? Is this just something where you're totally not allowed to talk about? Well, I <laughs> that's my impression. Yeah, they're just more comfortable not having any doubt come in by reading or looking at it, looking into this information. Yeah. You know, if they... Well, it is, it is, it is like an enchantment. Let me ask you, if I may, about your campaign, wonderful campaign with Eli Weasel, pointing out that he hasn't got any tattoo on his arm. I mean, this is... Let me suggest this is what we mean by enchantment, okay? Mm-hmm. You've got the Messiah of the Holocaust... Um, who goes around talking to the president and charging $20,000 per lecture and whatever, and he hasn't even got the tattoo on his arm. I mean, how is that possible, Connor? I just don't get it. Well, there you go. See, when I started that, uh, I thought, oh, well, we'll play up this tattoo issue and, and he won't be able to show it and, and this will really make an impression. And I really kept going with that, working so hard at it, because I had this idea that more if I could just bring down Ellie Weasel, that would be such a big blow to the whole Holocaust story. It would be so yeah. great. Well, I haven't even made a dent in that, even though I have the followers and the, those who already know like it. But those yeah. who don't know, no, they're not listening. And so it is, it's the same thing, that you think you can reach people, but you're, you're not, they're not reachable. They don't want to be reached. So... <laughs> But how about that? How about that guy who was writing a book claiming, showing the identity theft, that there really was someone else with that number which he claimed to have, who really was at Auschwitz, and you talked about how he was Nick- publishing a book. Nicholas Gruner. Right, that's right. Yes, yeah, didn't well, that have some I effect? Have his, I have his book, you know, and yeah, I read it all yeah. and, and used it, and I've talked to him personally on the phone once. But the problem is that when he sees that I'm not, uh, I'm not a Holocaust believer. Then he says he doesn't trust me and he's not going to talk to me. Really? Well, he talked for a while, but, you know, he's he's a funny character because he sees right through Ellie Weasel, but he doesn't doesn't the Holocaust itself at all, and he tells stories (laughs) about his own experience there, which can't be Oh, right, right, yeah. So he's kind of a mixed-up guy, but I do believe that he was he was sincere about what he knew about Weasel, and I, I do believe yeah. he did go and get all these documents. Yeah, I'd have thought with that book, Night, being studied in so many American colleges and 12 million sold, that the American public would want to hear about what you discovered about his tattoo. You know, I, I just can't see how they, they don't want to hear about Uh I know. Well, that same thing. When I read your book, I think it's so excellent. And I think, boy, anybody reading this could not stand up against these arguments. Well, those arguments. It's all about, you come to it from a scientific standpoint. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Continue. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine, yeah. So we, we can go into this a little bit more later, but let's tell the listeners, uh, if there are any that don't already know, <laughs> how, you, how you've approached this uh, as a scientist. Well, I first got in with uh, comparing the two main chemical analyses. People had bravely gone and chipped away at the walls of Birkenau and Auschwitz, German Rudolf and Fred Leuchter, and they'd used the same scientific method and procedure, and therefore their two different uh, data sets could be directly compared, uh, and putting them together told a very simple story and totally unequivocal. Uh, and any weaknesses each survey may have was counterbalanced by the strength of the other survey, you know, that they totally reinforce each other which is what science is supposed to be about. And that gives you a memory of what happens, your best memory of how the zyklon cyanide was used 70 years ago, 
Okay, it's a chemical memory, the best memory we've got. And it clearly shows that all the gas was used in the little delousing chambers out at Birkenau, which are written out in history books where the walls are bright blue, and it wasn't used in any alleged human human gas chamber. Uh, and so it shows a, a terribly simple conclusion that um, the gas killed bugs, not Jews. Uh, and uh, th this what caused all the furore. But what was so interesting for me was that people couldn't bear to talk about it. Nobody asked me about what I'd actually published. They just, I just got this terrific incantation of abuse, you know. Oh, God, we found a Nazi. How awful. And, and, and uh, so I, I began to wonder what was going on uh, in my bewilderment. And I started, therefore, re reading, getting more correspondence with the Kodor people, people on the Kodor side, um, stood up, up for me. And they seemed to think it was finally I'd done. And, and so that sort of kept me going a bit. And then a, a British revisionist group slowly started up and we got to start a British website and we discovered the um, staggering fact that there's a whole lot of data uh, out in West London, public record office, of decrypts that the British, British intelligence had made for a whole year during the war of all the German labour camps. And um, there was this chap, Nick Terry, you know, the historian at Exeter, who talked about them and, and tried to pretend they showed some sort of uh, meaning, or he was arguing that shows a failure of British intelligence, not realising the Holocaust is going on. But uh, I mean, basically, they do not show any sign of any Holocaust at all, and that's why all the hundreds of books published on the Holocaust they don't mention these books, these these vital decrypts, you know. And and uh, we've just had a a British Jewish historian apologising for how oh it went. They came out in the 1990s. And a British, uh, a British historian apologised for the failure of British intelligence not to realise that the Holocaust was going on. And I could mention, Caroline, that it's just around the same time as the Catholic Church grovelled with apology for, for, because its Pope failed to realise that the Holocaust was going on. And it's just about the same time the International Red Cross also apologised because its report, uh, a very detailed bulky report of the German labour camps, failed to realise that the Holocaust was going on. Uh, and um, so, uh, I mean, we just took these decrypts at face value. They show what was actually happening in the camps. And that is why I could publish a book on the subject. Those decrypts not only described day to day over 12 months what was going on in the camps, but they also had this terrific uh, data set of every day, number of people coming and going from the camps and the total number of people living in the camps. And um, they broke that total number down into the four groups, Poles, Russians, Jews and German political prisoners. So that, that, that database is then very compatible with various other databases that I'm sure you're familiar with, Caroline, like the Allison Archive, you know, mm -hmm. and the, um, for example, the Death Books of Auschwitz. That gives you the number of people who died at Auschwitz, which is, is very, it's so important and valuable to compare that with the number of people living at Auschwitz, which the which the decrypts give you, okay? Right. Uh, and and uh, I'm, I've been a school maths teacher, and, and that having those numbers was just lovely. I mean, it's real figures at last. The number of people actually living and dying in the camps, uh, and uh, that clears away the, the hocus pocus of um, of what politicians have said, uh, because it, it it is absolutely immediate raw data. And as a science historian, I'm, I'm trained to go for the 
primary source data to, to look out for it and and base judgments on what you call original data and come um, so, so that's why I'm happy about the book because it is based on this primary source data. Yeah, I was yeah. going to bring that up. That the thing that you have that's new. Well, what I really like about your book, after the title, is also that you've got this new thing in it about the decrypts that the British managed to get. And in the end, you know, they they speak well for the Germans. That's <laughs> that's true. Oh yeah, yeah. That they that they did break that code and they did learn all that because if, pe- if we could get people to listen to what they show, they back up the idea. That the uh, yeah. that there was no Holocaust and that yeah. there was a labor camps and what was actually going on and then as you say the actual death counts which which correspond with these various sources that we should normally think of as as authoritative the Red Cross um, the Auschwitz death books that were discovered there you know where they kept the records of all of that and, right. and other sources and now these decrypts they all agree. And yet, once again, we're under this spell that, oh, uh, there's a six million, and you can't question that, and that's the actual fact. Well, when yeah, every well, newspaper well, in the world has been telling its readers that since 1945 or six, uh, <laughs> it's easy to understand why why people have that stuck in their minds. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, my, the Spellbreaker's Manual that I've published, right? How to break the spell. How to be a spellbreaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a self-empowering book. How to be a spellbreaker. Uh, that six million is a terribly important number to use. Uh, it, firstly, it, it echoes right through the 20th century's endless newspaper headlines. Uh, nearly 200, some people have found, from the from the end of the 19th century right up to 1945, when six million Jews uh, at Nuremberg suddenly have been killed. Okay. Yes. And then the other way in which um, six million appears is the total, this is a quite amazing figure, is the total number of people, nearly all Jews, who have held out their hand for reparations on the grounds that they are Holocaust survivors to Germany. So Germany has been unwittingly creating all these endless Holocaust stories by offering money, well over 100 billion Deutschmarks it's paid out, to anyone who can give, give a story of being a Holocaust survivor. Now, they may have paid out only about to about 4 million people, but the total number of people who have applied is, I think, 6 million, to the nearest million. So, uh, so that is, uh, and that is obviously far, far more than the number of Jews who ever lived in all the lands ever occupied by National Socialists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that number is roughly half that. You've got something like 3 or 4 million uh, Jews in all the countries ever occupied by National Socialists, and you've got a much larger number than that have now applied for um uh, for, for, for the, the cash. So, um, as Forreston, Robert Forreston so rightly points out, all these Holocaust survivors are not living testimonies to the Holocaust. They are living refutations of the Holocaust because there are so many of them. Mm-hmm. Just by their numbers, they refute the basic story that they are claiming to, um, cl- claiming to tell. I, I think that's a so important irony that's come in now, uh, w- which Germany is unwittingly generated by this dreadful amount right. of cash it's paid out. Know, we know that uh, Germany was forced to accept uh, all this guilt and accept the findings of the Nuremberg Tribunal. And then they were forced to uh, agree to these reparations. They really didn't have any choice because Germany has been under, has, there's never been a peace treaty. 
So they, they're still the masters of Germany, so to speak. Germany has to go along with, what, with what's done. So this is another part that has to be, I, I think, cleared up before people can really understand why the Holocaust is not what it's been made out to be. Uh, yeah, and, and it, Germany keeps saying, "Oh yes, we, yes it was. Oh yes, so we're guilty of all this." Most people are not going to challenge it. No, no. Are there many people in Germany now in jail for thought crime, for doubting the Holocaust? Is, is that quite? Is that happening quite a lot now? Well, I hear numbers that shock me. They're not all in jail, but uh, people have been uh, found guilty of whatever in the past year or so. And how many are in jail? Well. I don't cope with that as well as I should either. But books are still being burnt and banned in Germany, aren't they? Yes, yes. That's quite a lot. And, and you, you can't say a word, you know, you, you can't speak up about anything. And what is what we have to recognize too, which is another difficult and sensitive area, is that this is all uh, Jew-imposed. It's all Jewish-imposed uh, laws and rules, really. The governments of the Allies nations uh, benefit to some extent and they benefit from the war narrative going this way but not to the extent that as you pointed out with the, with the those who are the survivors in quotes who are getting compensation and the money that's gone to Israel and all the aid for Israel from Germany um, that Germany still has to get. And nuclear submarines, they've just given their fifth nuclear submarine to Israel I mean, can you believe it? Yeah, I can. It makes me pretty sick. But, uh, but <laughs> it you, does. Know, you, this, you have to take this into consideration yeah. to understand why this is still going on and why there's no let up and, and why it is basically <laughs> Jewish imposed. <laughs> and, and I agree with the fact that uh, many, many Jews uh, are just as much victims of, of the propaganda as uh, whites are. And everybody yeah. else is, but still, it, it is a it is an international Jewish conspiracy, so to speak. I would call it a conspiracy. How about you? Um, huh. Well, it's terribly difficult to assess that side of things. I mean, throughout Europe now, uh, there's a whole of Central Europe where it's a crime to doubt the Holocaust, uh, or, or a crime. People are put in jail. They've got Holocaust-type laws that, that they can't, as such, say the Holocaust, but implies that uh, they'll put you in jail if you if you're actually found in the Holocaust. Um, I, I um I, I wouldn't actually I wouldn't as such say it was a, Jew, a Jewish plot. I mean, uh, manifestly, the story was brewed up by British and American military intelligence at Nuremberg. That's what I would say. Um, I, I mean, obviously there are Jewish influences and people at work. But, uh, well, there was a, it, yeah, they, they sent, uh, they put mostly Jews in charge of all of that, except for the uh, most, you know, the highest levels, they, they didn't, but they had all Jews in the, in the background, and so they were, they had that agenda. Mm. Well, the way I'd, the way I'd describe, recommend people discussing the matter, mm. when, when they start, people start talking about the Holocaust, just point out that in the labor camps, Jews are a minority. And Auschwitz, they're only about 40% Jews. And uh, I think for most of the labor camps, you know, it's fluctuating around that sort of level. There are generally more Poles than Jews. And in death books of Auschwitz, you get more Catholics than Jews dying. Um, and and, and uh, they don't have a special privileged position. They have the special position of being chucked out of Germany. Germany wanted to get rid of most of its Jews. 
uh, and flush them out eastwards. But uh, in the German labour camps, the position is not at all unique. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and certainly they're not vilified or damned in, in the camps. They were decrypted, show them being referred to perfectly respectfully for the different skills they've got. Uh, and for example, the orchestra at Auschwitz had uh, mainly, uh, mainly or a lot of Jews in it, or one, two of the orchestras. Um, so so th their claim that they've got some special victim status is not warranted by what happened in the German labour camps. I, I think we need uh, a, an ability to do history des describing the German labour camps and, and whatever purpose of them might have been without, without this single focus on, on Jews this and Jews that. Um, I mean, they are, they are a part of the story. Well, I would go but, along with that altogether. I'm just saying that since since then, I think they're the they're the by far the largest part that's that's keeping it in place and not allowing the uh, questioning and the, what should naturally be going on, where where hmm. you know with uh, wartime propaganda and atrocity propaganda should naturally uh, you know insight and discussion. There should be discussion about it and revision. Uh, should be yeah. taking place, but they're the they're the main ones who are who are putting their foot on that and stopping that, and and they seem to have they have the power to do so. Huh. so. Is it part of their self identity that they need to believe in this? And um, wouldn't they be much happier if they could give up the belief in it uh, well, and I realize a lot of Jews would? But see that that would then that would allow Jews to to do more uh, what what's called. Um, Integrating into the Gentile world, and they don't want that. So those who are leading this, uh, I've got only knows really what's behind all this. It's sometimes I think I probably don't even know the, the well-known names that that we talk about. But who really knows what's behind it all? But it's yeah. Well, well, the, the purpose of my book is, in a sense, I don't answer these ultimate questions. But the purpose is to enable people to have interesting discussions of the matter as it were, without losing your friends, you know, uh, how to be able to allude to factual issues uh, that uh, uh, if you can stay with definite factual issues, people can remain calm. It's so easy uh, that uh, getting into a situation where people just boil over the top and they storm out and you've lost your friends, you know. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I agree with you, Nick, and, I, and I, I've always said, you know, I'm happy to stick with the facts, and if we just stick with the facts... We'll get somewhere, but it's the facts no. that we're not allowed to stick with. Yeah, well, well uh, this is, I mean, I was saying in British schools today, you get massive indoctrination. It's the most heavily taught in British schools, and the technique is totally medieval. In medieval times, the priest could decree what you had to believe, and then damn you, if you didn't believe, accept his belief, oh, you're the spawn of Satan, now we're only the only you. And that's exactly what's happening in modern education in this country, that a single Holocaust narrative is given. And anyone who doesn't believe is, oh, Nazi, Nazi. Mm -hmm. And that is a, it's an incantation, Caroline. I find that the most extraordinary thing. When people were saying this to me, nobody would ever tell me what a Nazi was, okay? I thought Nazis hadn't existed for 50 years, but um, you thought, suddenly... You thought what for 50 years? I thought Nazis hadn't existed for 50 years, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought it was just something in the past. Mm -hmm. But suddenly, oh, Nazi, Nazi, is he a Nazi? And it's an incantation that does not have a defined meaning. It's, it's the ultimate uh, kind of evil thing. It's the worst thing anyone can call it, apparently. And it's almost the same word as Zion, isn't it? It's almost the same letters. 
and and uh, oh, I it's see. Uh, mean, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's obviously a very very similar ideology to Zionism, um, and and it's but it's 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 a hate incantation, and and um, uh, so it's a question of of what to do when that happens. But uh, well, Nazi is an invented word. Uh, I I myself have spoken up for where it has a certain origin. Among the National Socialists, and it National Socialists, as yeah, a, as a short, you know, a short nickname. Um, well, it serves, serves them right for having such a long Germany, but it wasn't ever used officially, and it wasn't no, used it wasn't. that much. But it's been used uh, consistently and solely by the opposing forces uh, ever, yeah, since, uh, yeah. ever since even the 1930s or so, I guess. And just yeah. always, and I noticed you use the word Nazi. I can understand that it's yeah, I probably shouldn't. But it it's what people are talking about. Nobody's talking about national socialism when the Holocausters talk, you know, speak about the, this particular party that was in power. They never call them national socialists or the NSDAP or anything. They they call them Nazis, as though everybody that was associated <laughs> there was some yeah. kind of a uh, whatever a Nazi's supposed to be. You know, yeah. and, uh, so right there, uh, I, I mm. think if we don't correct some of these things, that's partly why they can keep up this spell, because they've yeah. got these words and they've got these ideas of, yeah. uh, of uh, Nazi evil that yeah. people want to uh, cling to, even if you give them a lot of facts, uh, as you do and others have done, why why this is not true and that's not true and so many Yeah, I, I think casting a spell is very much to do with having certain key words, isn't it? It's yes. very extraordinary. That's what a magician would have said in olden times, you know, that, that the words for making a spell. And as you say, Nazi, and misusing the word Semitic, for example. Obviously, that refers to the Arab-Palestinian people and not to the white Ashkenazi Khazars who have come to Israel, you know. That word has to be misused. It is always misused in our culture. And the word Holocaust has to be misused. That means a fiery sacrifice. Mm-hmm. As in, if you remember long ago, there was the nuclear holocaust. But that's the correct use of the word. Uh, and, and these these key terms get misused in the um, enchantment process that people are given. Um, and uh, I was just saying that uh, in schools today, they get taught it in about four different classes. You know, holocaust this, the holocaust that. Uh, and uh, in a way that it's the only thing in the school curriculum in which no kind of doubt is permitted. You know, no kind of discussion is allowed, no kind of developing alternate views. Pupils are not invited to make up their own mind. You know, they're allowed to read different stories and make up their own mind. Um, I wonder if if you've come across this at all, Caroline, or was your yeah? I was just going to say because I did a study even in my own town where I live. Oh, back a number of few years ago, and uh, I went to the schools and asked them about their. of course, I already knew what the school programs were in general, yeah. and asked yeah. them about their their Holocaust uh, teaching <sighs> programs. And yeah. they didn't know; they thought I was just interested from, you know, of a believer's point of view. And so they were yeah. telling me all about it, and I was meeting with teachers. And you know, they started in the first grade, and there were these uh, kids in grade, uh, very young grades. They're they're talking about it, and then they had a big program in the fourth grade and a big program in the 8th grade. And mm-hmm. that, that's where they really do it. In the high school, you, they have some of it, but it's kind of connected with um, history 
World War II history, and then they'll have their Holocaust. Uh, they'll give four to six weeks for it, too, which is incredible. Love it, how? <laughs> take that much time out of wow. it. This is not a big uh, Jewish area where I live, but they've got it. They, they, they do it. They get it in everywhere. I mean, the Texas, the Texas school system. Has just accepted yeah. it, and once they accept it, they are given this program to do, and and everybody does it. And yeah, what you said is that um, they they bring it forth in with such a manner, just like when you see these politicians tending these memorial memorial anniversaries and so on. They all get that look on their face, and there's all this solemnity and so on. And so you, uh-huh. you're you're encouraged right there that this is something that you don't make light of. At all, and you and in the schools, they, they're they're encouraged right off the bat without even having to be told. Well, you can't. They don't say you can't question this, but these kids are scared to death if they should. I suppose yeah, if one must... would, he would get quite the lecture. All the other students would uh, would you know look down on him and uh, or her and. Yeah, obviously, obviously needed a very powerful spell weaver to get a spell as powerful as that. Right, right. So I, I think you know there's a lot to talk about in your in your uh, book, and you've got it divided up into the history that never happened, and then part two, science or religion, and part three, opening the gates of memory. And I think a lot of your best uh, scientific commentary is is in part one, where you really really go into it and make it clear that uh, uh-huh. that this is all as you're just saying, like a, a spell that's been woven. Over everything. Yeah. But so, the idea of, of what can be done about it is also important, which I think yeah. is good if we touch on, you know, of why why you can't change people's minds. And, and my first suggestion is that people are discouraged from ever looking at it and they're ever reading any of this material. That's why they, they describe it the way they do. That's why they call you a Nazi. Is why would somebody want to read what you said? Because yeah. uh, you're obviously not honest. Yeah. Well, I would favour in America, Caroline, the Native Americans being assertive, uh, being assertive, uh, and and demanding that Holocaust studies classes and Holocaust study memorials refer to what has happened to them and not anybody else. I mean, that is the real Holocaust in America, is it not? So tell me, Caroline, supposing a Native American teacher at a school wants to include in Holocaust studies what has happened to the Native Americans. Do they get dismissed, or do they get told off, or do they lose their job, or, or can they teach? Oh, no, in fact, as a matter of fact, that's another one of the major special themes and teachings that go on in, in the grade schools, and, and, and in, uh, in, in high school, too. But uh, they start out early there, too, and they tell about how terrible it was what happened to the Native Americans, and is, is that a holocaust? Is that, fault, you know? is, is, that a, is that a holocaust? Is that taught as a holocaust? Well, no, naturally they wouldn't call it a holocaust, but I think they call it a genocide. I'm sure they do. You know, I was huh. substitute teaching for a while, yeah. and uh, yeah. and I and I did go to some grade schools, and they've got these films that they show. The teachers only have to have this little lesson plan that they're given, and they just mm-hmm. follow it, and and it's all done, and the kids get very. Uh, angry at uh, at their own uh, at at the Americans, you know, the white Americans, and they what they did to the Indians, and they go on and on about it. So that's a that's another issue oh, right. that is uh, that is very. Well, I, I, would, I, yeah, I would suggest that is the only Holocaust that Americans should focus on, and they should use the word Holocaust for that if they're going to use it at all. 
I mean, in neither case is it correct, okay, because Holocaust means a burning, fiery sacrifice. But, but if you want to use the word, people do want to use the word, I, I think in America it should only be applied to Native Americans, and Holocaust Museums should be only about that and not about an alleged genocide in Europe, which didn't in fact happen. Yeah, but well, yeah, many people have made that argument. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, right. Anywhere, because people <laughs> oh, sure. want to talk about the Holocaust of the Jews. That that's yeah. the only one they really care about. Truth. Is this a religious thing about God's chosen people? Is this from reading the Bible? I feel Jews are God's chosen people, and therefore, what happened to them in World War Two is infinitely more important than what happened to anybody else. Is it something like that, Caroline? Well, I don't think it's just. I don't think it's mostly religious, although it, it exists there. It certainly is in this, you know, Christian Zionist churches, which is very, very big in the United States. Uh, that's oh. a big part of Christianity here. But I, I think it's some kind of... We can't explain the power that the Jews seem to exert to make themselves so important. And actually, they've been doing it all through history because... Even in, if you go to the biblical days... Well, you, right, you've got to remember, Caroline, you have got at least 2% of Jews in America, and that is a lot, right? That is a hell of a lot. And we have got about half of 1% of Jews in this country, and they have a pretty damn strong influence here. Oh, very. Um, so, so, so I, I mean, that is the first point to make. You've got a lot of... Uh, right, I mean, and they, not, all came, they all came rushing uh, here... In around 1900, you know, earlier and later, but around that. Well, well I think the, the, the great diaspora surely began around 1938. You see, the, the main central world Jewry was East Europe, Poland, Hungary, Romania, uh, up until just before the beginning of the Second World War, and the great diaspora then began, and and Germans chucking out the Jews was just part of that. And they spread out, and after the war, they regathered in two places, Israel and America. Uh, and that's why you've got, like, 10% of Jews around New York and so on. Uh, that is the great diaspora, the tremendous movement that happened. And maybe if people could uh, look at this a bit more, it would uh, get over the idea of some sort of extermination in Europe, which didn't happen. I mean, it was basically a movement, uh, a movement out from East Europe, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you're right about that. But the, the Jews got control in the United States in the great numbers that they came um, you know, around 1900. I mean, it wasn't, you know, before and after right. and so on. Right. Around that period of time. Uh, and they filled, they filled up New York. They got control of New York politically. And then, you know, they got, got more and more in control of major industries, uh, newspapers, which was all that there was at that time, and Hollywood. And, mm. and then they got into uh, the universities, too. And that was what allowed all this power that they had in the 30s to influence. And you did a great job of describing what, what the Jewish... I, don't wanna, I know you don't want to get hung up on Jews, but uh, what, uh, what the Jews were saying, international Jewry was saying about uh, going to war with Germany and defeating all right, yeah. and so on. You had these various sources. I quoted them. Yeah, well, well, all right, yeah. Well, I wanted to make out why Jum should not feel so guilty about Jews being put into separate camps in the end of the 30s. All through the 30s, Jews were declaring war on Germany. Then they said they were going to start a war against Germany. Then, when it finally began, they claimed credit for having started and said it was their war. Uh, and, and 
given that all this is happening, I, I can't see that Germany has anything to feel desperately ashamed about just because they did something which every other country in Europe has found necessary to do at one point or another, namely chuck them out. Uh, I mean, so many countries sort of want to be nice to Jews and have been nice to Jews, and then they experience that sting, whatever it is, which we're not allowed to talk about, and, and there is expulsion in follows. And British edict of expulsion was in 1293, um, out of England for 300 years. Uh, and um, I don't think Germans should feel ashamed of that. It's a historical process, um, and, and, and uh, it's been misrepresented. I think it's our business, we're kind of friends of Germany, to, um, to tell Germany what they did. They're not allowed to write their own history. Germans are not allowed to tell their own history. And, and uh, it's our business to describe what they did and why, <laughs> why that's not something they should feel endlessly ashamed about. Well, I thought that was a great, great part that you, that you wrote there, and I really appreciated it. And I thought, well, that, you know, he, he's done a great job there of bringing up some, some sources that I didn't know about. And it was a, just a general overall direction coming from some, uh, what you can call the uh, International Jewish Center, uh, you know, well-known rabbis and both mm -hmm. Zionist leaders, some mm -hmm. U.S. Uh, rabbis and leaders and, and so mm -hmm. on. And they, uh, they coordinated this uh, idea that Germany was uh, trying to wipe out the Jews. They, they started that early on. Well, that's one, one terrific thing I think has happened now, that uh, the Goebbels diaries have now been thoroughly published, all in German, quite a bit published in England, and people who have read right through them are, are, are totally clear that the Enlos and the Judenfrag is always a territorial thing. It means moving the Jews out eastwards. Mm -hmm. It means flushing them out, and it's the goal or end solution. It does not mean extermination. There are some phrases where people are angry with the Jews, but it is not correct to describe that as extermination. And that's just only happened recently, Caroline. I think there's so much that's happened recently. People need to understand that the great triumphs and achievements of revisionism, a lot of this is recent. For example, Goebbels' diaries, and I could mention the other thing which we'd feel proud of, the tremendous sequence of books by Carlo Matogna, okay? These may not be a gripping read because they're quite technical, but Carlo Matogna reads Polish-German and, um, and, and Italian, and, and so he can access all these Middle European sources. And I think his book, Translated to English, is an, you know, an absolutely vital source for revisionist truth. Uh, and I think we're now, in this, uh, in this period now, uh, uh, the revisionists have totally won the arguments, in, in essence. A, a, any debate in public, revisionists are going to be seen to one, win. And I think that's a, a terrific change we're going through now. I mean, I could write my book because of these um, uh, wonderful researches that, that's been done quietly and in the backgrounds um, by, by, by revisionists. Uh, and uh, as you say, I think this, this makes clear really the first time uh, what, what, what happened. Well, right. So uh, some of this is, but people were saying it, but nobody was, they just dismissed them as being biased or something. Yeah. Tell me, Caroline, do you feel that uh, we're at a turning of the tide now? Because I look at web comments. Whenever something's published on the Holocaust, I go straight to the comments. Mm -hmm. And I notice most of them are sceptical in England, whereas I notice in America there's more a tendency to believe the official story. 
But otherwise, lots of international articles, the comments are mainly angry and sceptical these days, whereas five or ten years ago it was different. Uh, do, do you have an impression of some great change, uh, possibly because people are fed up with what Israel has been doing in Gaza and so forth, that people have just had enough of this story? Well, sure. I, I think that's slowly happening. But they're working very hard. It's, it's just a question of you have to understand what they're doing. Uh, but it may be all backfiring that they have to work so hard to bring up this uh, evil now. The, it's evil to be anti-Semitic. I think this is a losing argument. Because people are not going to go, you can't have uh, all this free democracy that you're promoting and uh, equality for everyone and so on. And it's at the same time say that, uh, that people cannot speak about a certain group in, in a negative way because of whatever. There's no reason. They don't have any reason for it, really. But they just want to impose these laws. And they have, That's how they they do, have yeah. their agents there in, in the European Union and the European parliament there that they've created they're willing to go along with all of that and pass these laws but there's not enough of them i hope people will hold out on that because it's to make a europe-wide law against anti-semitism and then they describe in as general terms what anti-semitism is and that you can't be that is is the height of of lunacy because if somebody doesn't yeah. want to like somebody they don't have to like them no, 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 right. I mean, it doesn't apply to anyone else. It doesn't apply to Muslims or Arabs. No. It doesn't apply to English people. You can be as rude as you want to an English person. Uh, and and um, they just want some special, always want some special protection in law um, as, as if you, they might be offended. Well, that's kind of the, uh, the history of, uh, of the, say, uh, the Jewish um, movement, increase of Jews in Europe and so on and, and around the world is that when they go into new areas, they have to be getting special protections along with it, and they try to get special protections everywhere. And that's their history in the United States. If you read what, like, even just Henry Ford's uh, The International Jew talks a lot, or his writers talk a lot about how the Jews came into the United States, and uh, right away they were uh, organizing to make sure that they had laws protecting them. And they, yeah. nobody well, that, that, this. No, all, we have all these groups coming into the United States and all these immigrant groups. Nobody else acted like that, did that, but they yeah. used to it, and they're very good at it. And they get yeah, it. that happened. That happened a thousand years ago when William the Conqueror came into England, and he brought Jews with him because they had a knack of squeezing money out of the population, and he could then get uh, taxes off them. And there were special laws protecting the Jews, and the, the word "one Jew" is worth. 10 Christians or something in court and, and so they were brought into this country with special laws protecting them, yeah. So they're, so they're just, just following that in a, just using reason. I mean if, if, uh, if the Jews have always needed to have special laws protecting them because people uh, didn't like them or would somehow harm them or try to kick them out or whatever uh, usually ended up that way Then, but other people don't have these and don't ask for them and and uh, then there's got to be something about the Jews. It's not about people. They, you know, they want to make out. And this is so obvious to anybody, unless you're just totally under this spell, that the problem is with the Jews. The problem is not with the other groups who are hmm, supposedly anti-Semitic or, or find fault with them. 
or don't hmm, want I've, in their countries or in their neighborhoods. Hmm, I've always appreciated having Jewish friends, but oh. uh, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit sort of nervous when that subject comes up. I, I, I wish I could raise this subject with them, but uh, I, it's, uh, I, I never quite um, ma managed to, you know. Um, well, but I, I, hey, you're like you're like me <clears throat> with the Christians. I don't I don't want to offend Christians, but and Christian friends. But at the same time, uh, I don't. Uh, I would say things that uh, I could say things, but I don't want to say them to them. So I guess uh, that's that's maybe one of the areas where we're not able to be as open and honest as as we think. And like, and it's in the area of religion, isn't it? Because you're saying that uh, Holocaust is religion, and you make you talk about that. A lot. It has turned into has turned into the great modern religion, right. and it accesses far far deeper emotions than, uh, at least in my experience, far deeper emotions than any other uh, religious studies. Um, yeah, and when it's when it's religion, then we're hesitant to talk to a person who's believing in in that religion. We're hesitant to uh, question their religion. Uh, now with the uh, Holocaust, it's it goes further to where you will be uh, legally held legally responsible for being a criminal. It is a strange business, isn't it? I mean, the whole of Russia recently just passed a law, uh, Putin did, uh, or at least the Russian parliament, banning banning dancing in the Holocaust. And, and uh, I find it very amazing that this is progressing in Europe. I mean, Spain undid their law. That's the one bright spark of hope. Spain repealed its law of denying the Holocaust, <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh, most other countries seem to... We know it does have a, large, a largely to do, I think, Nick, with they want to protect their World War II narrative. Yeah. And that's what's going on uh, with Putin in Russia, and that's what's going on with the British, I think, basically, and, and the United States. They want to protect that World War II narrative, but that World War II narrative goes further than just showing them as being the the victors and the good guys. It goes deeper yeah. than that. It goes into the kind of world order they are uh, agreeing to set up. Yeah. For me, what people call Holocaust denial is like switching on the light. And once you switch on the light, you can see what's what. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, Europe desperately needs to have a real discussion of World War Two. And what the hell was it about, you know? Why did 60 million people die? Why has Britain twice declared war on Germany in the 20th century? Um, and we can't have that discussion. At the moment, you just use about two words is all you need, Hitler and Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And that terminates discussion, you know? That's it, end of discussion, and you all know who to hate, don't you? And, um, and, and so it's a vehicle or a means of political control. Uh, as if we need to be controlled, uh, and and and, uh, and and that is, yeah. I find the reason I like the company of revisionists. I actually like talking, like and hearing me hearing talk about World War Two. I don't know a lot about it, but I really appreciate having hearing real discussion of, of World War Two and who did what. And, and uh, I, I don't feel that Germany wanted, quite wanted a war in either case. And, 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 and uh, I think if we could struggle to get to the truth in that matter, but we can only do that once you're away from this Holocaust narrative, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that is the first step for human enlightenment. I really well, do. You know, I'm in total agreement with you, and I'm, uh, I, I, am, I have no fear 
of talking factually and investigating and research and so on into all of the causes and, and realities of World War II, um, mm-hmm. that it's going to somehow knock down something that I hold dear that I don't want to let go of or whatever. I, I, I just want everything to come out, and I know that, that, that Germany yeah. will be in a lot better shape when that... Sorry, well, yeah, yeah. Sure. And so... Do you feel- do you feel the first step is for Germany to declare peace and formally end the Welsh World War? Uh, would that be a step of, uh, of sovereignty? If it declared peace, it could ask the occupying nations to leave Germany. Um, would, that, would that, it needs to gain sovereignty, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not, yes. it's not formally sovereign, is it? Yes, I agree with that. Yes, I, I know that they are legally supposed, from what I understand, they're legally not able to do that. But they don't, who has to pay attention to that kind of law? Well, you think the United States is going to attack Germany today because they're, they're, you know, insisting on, uh, removing their troops there and they're insisting on becoming a fully sovereign nation and having a full peace treaty? They say that this peace treaty, that this, uh, Reunification Treaty, which d- determined uh, the, the forever and forever borders of Germany that could never be changed. The present borders were permanent. Yeah. Now, that's supposedly their peace treaty, but it wasn't, and, and, and legally, no, no, it, wasn't. No, it wasn't. So uh, this is all a game that they're playing. In Germany, they've got everybody there now in control uh, who goes along with it. So Germany goes along with it because... The people who would oppose it are in such a minority, and and they're they're afraid to speak up, also because of the very things that have happened to you and that you've been discussing. Mm. Well, let's help Germany can let its, let its historians out of jail, and, and allow its historians to tell the history of their own nation. I don't see why we couldn't have a big movement. I think a lot of people would join that movement. That would be just based on that. Uh, free mm. free Germany. Uh, let the uh, let the people historians, historians out of jail that are based on these laws that they've passed mm. uh, Germany needs a constitution ratified by the people without the uh, top down insistence that it be this or that uh, Germany mm. needs to let up on its security services which are all all aimed toward what's supposed right wing people in Germany you can't have a right wing in Germany but you can have a left wing and a communist wing you have communist parties and so on they need to uh well, they need to let go of that. They need to fashion yeah. themselves after the United States. Well, look at look at all the freedom we still have here in the United States. Yeah, you got a very very right wing. We say your party is a very right wing. What? Which party? We say politics in America is very right wing, but you don't have a left wing in, in America. No, not that's the way. Yeah, but you know, in in Europe, all the countries in Europe, you're getting new right type movements burgeoning and these are concerned with trying to maintain or affirm traditional culture uh, and traditional values um as it gets as it being quickly swept away by multi so-called multiculturalism you know uh, and so i think the new right is a force it's still very ethically damned i mean in, in britain the new right can't meet publicly without being vilified and you know you get called a nazi obviously but uh, these are people who want to maintain traditional culture and, and civilization, traditional values and civilization, and, and they're called the new right. So perhaps um, that that is a force that may not be stoppable, you know. Well, it could be. It could be that that's what, you know, at least it's happening, and it could be the sign of what's going to come in the future. It could also be uh, 
abrogated or just uh, stopped in its tracks, you know, could be really going nowhere. And it could also be infiltrated, which has happened again and again, that mm-hmm. whenever there are these movements to go against the powers that be, uh, mm-hmm. then they are infiltrated with people who become incompetent and, and cause problems. And next thing you know, the uh, people are dropping out and the whole thing is failing. So when you see mm-hmm. failure in this, I think uh, there's something behind it. And we have to realize how big the powers that be are and how, therefore, how big of a resistance they would have going on or this kind of program to stop anything uh, growing up against them. It's pretty mm-hmm. hard. I just, you know, I go back to the, what, why I like your book so much and you is because you're a scientist and you come mm-hmm. at it the whole, just going back to the Holocaust, which is a mm-hmm. kind of cornerstone of all of what holds this all together. Um, yeah. Come at it from this uh, very clear, easy to follow scientific perspective. And really, <laughs> oh, good, yeah. against it, so they don't. They just say, they just call you as you say, call you names, and try to keep reading it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny the way I did it because uh, it was something I was interested in. And after I was thrown out my college, I was told that it was the only thing that important in my life. You know, is that the thing I'd done and. Uh, and nobody that seemed interested in anything else I've done in all my life, which is very bewildering. And oh God, I, I was the Holocaust denier of, of Britain, and, uh, and and I couldn't get any jobs doing anything else. So in a sense, I had to write the book. You know, uh, people were, were defining me as as this was the subject, and 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 yet there was this terrific silence all around. You know, people didn't want to talk about it. And um, I, if I just found a few ethically damned right-wing people knew right that they would talk about it uh, and this was so strange for me that i kind of had to write the book do you know what i mean mm-hmm. um <laughs> and, and, and uh i'm 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 very glad if it uh, if it does make sense yeah, oh, I, yeah. I, I, feel... I just think it's uh it's really it's just perfect for today for now mm-hmm. and the thing is how to get it into the hands of of more people <sighs> Yeah. And I suppose well, some of the things that I tend to say is not the way to get it into the hands of more people. <laughs> because you don't want to make people afraid of uh, of your subject matter by saying, "Oh, I don't want to get involved with those with those right wing nutcases or whatever." But, um, <laughs> well, maybe the thing we've been talking about, Caroline, about uh, education, how teachers should tackle this subject, given that they do have to tackle a subject, uh, we should argue that they need a. Uh, a, a, a diverse approach, which different narratives are permitted, and uh, pupils are allowed to make up their own mind. Maybe we should request this in modern educational curriculum. That's one thing I think might be worth trying. Well, I think that would certainly make the uh, that those who don't want that look bad, you know, and certainly point out that this is not allowed and why is this not allowed. So I think that's a good idea. How do you, um, you know, getting a kind of an organized thing going, but it just takes somebody who wants to uh, name something and say, well, this we got this group here called this, and we want to do this, and then people will gather around it and support it. Right. So that, uh, that would be one thing that you could follow up, <laughs> you and your friends could follow up with from this book. You know, I noticed that a lot of your uh, friends and associates are people who have been I don't know if you call them on the left. I guess the left would not call them on the left, but I would call them more on the left, uh, like right. Sir and, and Kevin Barrett and some of those others who you have really changed quite a bit. 
I know Kevin mm. Garrett has changed quite a bit in being open to. Uh, right, right. Uh, Right. And so people like that, it would be really helpful, I'm sure, to to get them to be more active uh, in in the cause of truth about it, as you just mm-hmm. the way you put it. That would be a good idea. You do talk about this thing, a just law, in your appendixes. Mm-hmm. I thought some of your appendixes were very good. I like the one of your rights, and you go through a whole lot of organizations that have been created, which which keep the Holocaust in place, and you talk about them, and I think that's so. Do you want to comment on that, any? Um, well, basically, what I try to say in those appendices is that when somebody is summoned to a trial for allegedly denying the Holocaust, uh, the laws, they may wish they could say, oh, we ban denying the Holocaust, but they can't. They have to say, oh, we want to ban any discourse that might disturb the public peace. And then they try to imply that you're a Nazi and therefore you're liable to disturb the public peace. And that is a quite defensible, you can defend yourself, and indeed, in a sense, it's fairly absurd. For example, you can point out that books do not disturb the public peace. No book published ever disturbs the public peace. It just doesn't happen. And also discourse of revisionists, they talk to each other, there's absolutely no way that could disturb the public peace. So, uh, so, so the the nature in which the laws are formulated, uh, it's it's presupposed that the revisionist goes to jail, but it should not, in fact, be so. The revisionists can clearly explain and defend in in a court that there's no way his belief uh, defends uh, disturbs the public peace. Indeed, it's far more the Holocaust. Uh, fanatics who disturb the public pictures. They go through, invade you to check out your library or whatever. That is far more disturbing the public peace than a few revisionists talking to each other. Um, and and, and, and uh, so my arguments, I look at British, uh, French and German law, basically, is that, um, is, is, is that uh, someone should be able to defend themselves against this extremely vague notion of liable to disturb the public peace. That's what the way in which most of these laws are formulated. Um, that uh, it's up to, the, up to the person prosecuting to give evidence if the peace has been violated or is likely to be violated. Uh, and it's not up to the person accused to defend themselves because that's uh, you, you can't prove a negative statement like saying I am not disturbing the public peace. That the prosecutor should have the onus of showing that whatever is you, the originalist has done, like publishing a book, why on earth should that disturb the public peace? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that people should be able to. Um, I, I mean, there's a few exceptions, like Fred Tobin. I think he he. he does have very controversial language that is liable to disturb the public peace, you know, down under. But even so, he managed to avoid being arrested in England. Um, what, what is so wrong with his language? I think he's a very carefully spoken person. Um, all right. Well, I, I don't want to go into that t- t- too much, but uh, I, I would say having the national German flag, you know, with the swastika and, and being seen with it, that kind of thing, in Australia, or, uh, that is going a bit far and being provocative. 
personally, I, I passionately believe that we need a revisionist movement that is, in the words of Robert, For Robert Forrest on, a quest for historical exactitude. And it has political implications. We accept their political implications, but that is not the motive of the people doing the study. That that is the all-important thing. Right. That, that your motive... Well, people do your have motive, a right to, uh, to have their political beliefs. I don't know. You think that all revisionists should stay away from any political pronouncements or preferences in order to keep from somehow polluting their message? Well, not not quite, Colin. That's going a bit far. But but uh, the, the, the legislation throughout Europe is formulated as if there was a danger of the Nazi movement somehow coming back or whatever, and, 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 and that would be that would be regarded as as a cause of breaching the peace, and and and, and uh, that does actually exist, whether or not we approve of it. Um, throughout Europe, there is legislation in various ways uh, which acts as if there were some danger of some recrudescence of the. Of the German National Socialist Movement, which I wouldn't have thought there was, personally, but uh, you could be asking for trouble if you're directly uh, well, concerned about that. Yeah, I'm looking uh, for this quote from you. I'm sorry, C continue if you were. Well, I, I think the important thing is to be seen, uh, obviously revisionists are seen generally as quite non-violent and as not producing any uh, any, any uh, sort of public disturbance of the peace. I, I think that is, I think it's absolutely clear that is the case. And the people, uh, it's much more people enforcing the Holocaust who, who uh, are, are, are belief, who, who, if anything, are seen as disturbing the public peace. Oh, right, and become violent too. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So you're going to quote something, Caroline. Yes, I, I have, I finally found it here. I found this was interesting, and I would like you to say whatever you want to say about this. This is under... In your index about your rights, and this is a 1953 European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights, Article 10. And I, I think uh, this might be uh, what your comment that you wrote about this uh, yeah. protection of human rights, because you go through a lot of these these conventions uh -huh. and, and uh, things that have been passed in Europe. And you say our concern here has been what the Nazis did historically. Yeah, as you know, you're looking you're looking simply at the facts about what, what happened, would not yeah. constitute an endorsement of their actions. Indeed, research into what they did, which is the normal business of the historian, must surely help in enforcing a law prohibiting the promoting of Nazi ideology so that it can be applied more effectively. I found this a little confusing in relation to all the other things you wrote in the book. Uh, what, what are you suggesting there? Well, I'm just saying if you're defending yourself in a court of law, uh, that, that is the kind of theme of this appendix. Uh, and people say that, oh, look, you're writing about the Nazis. Um, you can just say this is what a historian should be doing. Uh, and uh, that, that doesn't um, mean that you're trying to promote the, the ideology of... of uh, see, that's what happened, for example, with Irving, David Irving. He's the great historian about World War Two, and obviously written some great books on the subject, which I suspect will be remembered when those of his critics have all been deeply forgotten. Um, and he was accused of being pro-Nazi. Um, 
just because he'd researched the subject in so much depth and gone out and sought out the documents. Uh, and, uh, right. uh, and he actually wrote about the uh, National Socialist leaders as if they were real human beings, looking at their motives, which I think is fairly unique amongst British writers, you know, or very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so he was, he found himself prosecuted because of that. And so I'm here trying to say that, uh, that one should be able to defend investigating this subject. Um, yeah. Just on those grounds. Yeah, without it being assumed that you're promoting it, and you and, and definitely you don't. I mean, I know I'm. Uh, you're clear on that, and that's that's perfectly fine. And a lot of people don't uh, who are revisionists. Who so uh, that okay? So that's what you what you're saying there. Well, I also heard you on a, another program that I was listening to parts of it yesterday, and I heard you say, uh, speaking of David Irving, you just kind of made the comment that you thought arrest in Austria and so on had done some damage to him because of the things that. The changes that he made in his uh, outlook on... Well, I, I thought that was the great trial with Lipstadt in 2000. That, that since then, it's as if he's changed and become more uh, kind of, not exactly bitter, but we used to think he was a great revisionist and he was definitely on our side. Oh, it was the, but, that, that's what you were speaking of, the trial with the... Yeah, okay. yeah, he, he was accused of falsifying history, which is outrageous, totally outrageous, being a falsifier of history. Uh, and the court had no business, whatever, to reach such a judgment. Um, mind you, I'm not clear why Irving took out that libel suit anyway, but he did. Um, <laughs> but um, after that, for example, he started defending the Hotel Telegram. Mm-hmm. Now, if you like, I could just comment on that. Yes, uh, please. Uh, uh, right. The British intelligence decrypts that I referred to earlier were published in the mid-90s, released, and they're now in the public record office, and that's what I published in my book, right? Mm-hmm. Some of it. And all of it, by the way, is on our website, whatreallyhappened.info. Now, the only bit that was any interest to anyone, around the year 2000, right at the ending of, of, of Irving's trial, was this so-called Hotel Telegram, um, which gives some numbers of people, ostensibly three, three, four different uh, camps, which are part of Operation Reinhardt, that is to say people moving out through those camps, moving eastwards. And they gave some numbers, okay? Mm-hmm. And somebody published a, a very, very absurd article in the Genocide Studies Journal claiming that these were mass murders. So the huge, the numbers involved, like 800,000 at Treblinka, were people liquidated, okay? And, and Irving endorsed this view. He totally endorsed it. And he, and he not only endorsed it, but he said, look, you see, don't, please don't call me a Holocaust denier because uh, I am endorsing the Hotel Telegram. And the Hotel Telegram shows that the action was further east than, than Auschwitz, that the, the, the real Holocaust was taking place further east, mm-hmm. because, as I'm sure you're aware, the, um, these transit camps, like Treblinka, Belzec, Sobibor, are on the border of what was then Poland and Russia, uh, to do with railway, railway trains, railway lines going eastwards into Russia, OK? Mm-hmm. So he said, oh, it shows the main Holocaust was happening further east than, than Auschwitz, and, and this is the real story. And he seemed to express a degree of certainty about this and said, you know, please don't doubt this or, or I might sue you sort of thing. And uh, revisionists or, you know, people in code are very puzzled by this. What does Irving really believe? Does he think mass gas happening happened or not? Uh, and um, so we're still in this very, I think, very puzzled situation. 
I mean, the way I would see it, I'm not judging or criticising anything, okay? There's only so much a man can cope with. And uh, for his livelihood, his livelihood involves going to all these places in Europe where the National Socialists were and looking at archives, okay? Looking at historical documents and interviewing people, talking with people. That's what he's done all his life uh, for his history books, right? And he wants to be able to do that without people saying, oh, God, here comes the Holocaust denier, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so my feeling is that he's done, adopted this Ron Strange position so that he can get on with kind of the work he's been doing all his oh, life. Or, his living too, and also, yeah. and wouldn't you say that he's concerned about uh, being just his whole reputation being destroyed so that all the work he did, all those books, you, as you say, such good books, that he wrote would somehow be censored or be not available to people in the future? Yeah, well, that is the case now. Yeah. That is the case now. He um, sells his books and he gives talks, which I haven't actually been to, but they obviously have to be in a secret location, you know, but a lot of people want to come and hear him. But I say he's the only British historian that a lot of people want to come and hear. Um, I can't think of any other. Uh, and uh, just to go back a bit, in is it 1992, he published his book on Hitler's war. His publisher, Macmillan, immediately pumped all his books. That was the end of the rather fine reputation he'd enjoyed because his book, Hitler's War, did not indicate Hitler knew anything about a gassing program or an extermination of Jews, mm -hmm. you know. And because of that, his whole reputation was trashed. And suddenly, you know, well, we're familiar with the whole story. But, but, um, well, there uh, again, I think you see, uh, Nick, you see the power that's in this that a publisher like that w will do what, what you just described. And uh -huh. presidents and prime ministers, as I was saying the other day uh, on a program uh, on this memorial of the camp openings that they had on Monday that was under the auspices of the World Jewish Congress, France and Germany and, and Croatia and some others uh, attended, and their camps were open. And uh, all these important people go along with this without the first question. They don't question it whatsoever. Yeah. What was that? When did you say that was? Last week? It was Monday. Monday, yeah, all right. Yeah, oh, a week ago, today. And where did they go, where did they go to? Well, there was the three places. They were at Bergen-Belsen. That was the biggest one. Oh, yeah. They were at uh, Struthof Natzweiler in France. That's where President yeah, Hollande yeah. was. And they were in, yeah. uh, Gen I don't know, the, I can't pronounce it unless I see it in front of me, Genesovic uh, camp in Croatia. Oh, right. Yeah, all oh, right. Amazing. And is it the case that... Putin declined, didn't go. Putin said he wasn't going. Is that right? Have I got the right? Oh, no, I don't. That didn't have anything to do with Putin. Uh, this one, because no. uh, this uh, was just a kind of a small event that I think probably was pushed by again. I'm sorry, World Jewish Congress, because uh, yeah. it was the, to, to uh, the anniversary of the opening of the camps. I think it was the anniversary yeah. of in Belsen. Yeah. You know. If we talk about programming of hypnotizing people, not exactly hypnotizing, but programming. That is when it happens, when they go to an event like that. When what? That is when it, the, the program, pro, process of programming politicians, yes. uh, of getting them kind of almost hypnotized, so they can't doubt it. That is when it happens, when they go to an event like that. Right, and then when David Irving sees this, and sees that Macmillan Publishing will actually pulp his books and so on, and he sees yeah. the danger and how big this is, he decides... Uh, very likely that uh, he's got to kind of uh, make some peace with this and try to make the best out of it because he can't fight it. 
You know, it can't be mm. fought. And th this is the reality that I look at so often. Oh, right. It is so yeah. big. But there have to be ways to get at it, to uh, get at people, get at people to to stop being loyal to this and to stop believing in it. And that's what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, break the spell, yeah, break the spell, yeah. Spell. If I could slightly shift this up, you mentioned Strutthoff. That, that is in France, isn't it? Northern France. Yeah, well, it's in Alsace-Lorraine. That's, yeah, that's right, yeah. Germany. Now, now that came into the uh, limelight recently because um, David Cole published his book, mm -hmm. you know, Republican Party Animal. David Cole was outed, right? Mm -hmm. The famous David right. Cole. He'd it, it, been invisible for years. Then he was outed by his ex-girlfriend. And um, one thing or another, it's all rather dramatic, and um, his book said, oh, no, I'm not denying the Holocaust, no. Uh, I, I accept that in this camp in Strutthof, or however you pronounce it, that there was gassing. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of us are rather puzzled by this. So what on earth sort of evidence he thought he had for it? Um, would you have any comment well, on that? Yeah, you, I, you have... Unfortunately, if I don't refresh myself on things, I forget all the details. But I did a whole program about this. And I, then I think I did too. And I had actually had Guillermo Rudolph, who agreed to come on all right. programs. And uh, yeah. he he doesn't put any stock in David Cole's uh, reasoning there and his evidence and so on. And I'm real happy about that, and, and he was willing to talk about it. And I've looked into all the, everything I could find about it that's, you know, just in English and all the stuff that's written mm. on the various Wikipedia pages about what happened yeah. and so on and, and yeah. everything that David Cole said. And it's it's questionable. There's a lot of versions, and it's uh, it's not it's nothing definite at all. I think it's a, just create another one of those creations based on that there was a camp there and there are some prisoners there. Yeah. And they get these various camp personnel and, or people involved to, uh, to give testimony. But in the end, they had a court case. That was one of the court cases, but they found all those people innocent that they were trying to find guilty of, uh, of gassing people there at Schutthof, Natzweiler. Um, was, that, was that a French court case? Alsace-Lorraine? Um, I think it was one of those German... Uh, yeah, all right, yeah. Camp, you know, like the Hamburg trial and the, this trial and that trial. They had them in there, one of those, um, maybe with the doctor's trials or something. But it, it gets it get very uh, complicated with uh, Himmler's program on uh, Ananerbi, Honor, you know, uh, and these people were working in that department and they were wanted skulls and skeletons of, of Jews. And so supposedly they got them, they got this camp there, Natzweiler, to gas a few Jews and to then uh, clean off the skin, <laughs> the flesh and so on and deflesh them. It all gets very gory sounding, but there's no real proof. With Kalinka, you know, now David Irving is going along with that, but David, oh, I know what I was going to say, David Cole has added that too, not just Notzweiler, but he's uh, he's gone along totally with everything David Irving says about Treblinka, Belzec, and Silverboy. Oh, no, that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's an emotional, it's very emotional, his book, terrific emotional, I can't really read it. It's, it's terrific, uh, passion and emotion all the time, uh, and... Uh, it's as if he just wants to say, oh, God, please don't call me a Holocaust denier. Look, I believe in this and that. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he then says, oh, there's a paper trail or something. And you look in his appendix. There's no paper trail at all. 
and, and, and um, yeah. it, it's just a shame that uh, uh, that's my impression too. Yeah, from that's what people said on Kodor that this is just a bit of post-war nasty anti-German propaganda brewed up. Uh, yeah, and, and as for Treblinka, I, I mean that that is well, we had a big issue. I didn't go over it, but we had a, a science department from Birmingham University here went out to Treblinka, you know. And it was so farcical what they did. They didn't find any bodies, didn't find any gas chambers, and they just made it up. They just pretended they'd found stuff. It was extraordinary. Well, right, and um, there you go. What we have is people are making things up. Little people that, you know, nobody even knows their name, and big people who are famous and so on. All kinds of people. They make things up. And this has to be a human, <laughs> a human nature problem where uh, other Concerns override the uh, the concern for truth and the willingness, and maybe maybe there again is that spell thing where people can talk yeah. themselves into things. And perhaps they need the guilt. Perhaps they like the terrific guilt that they feel. Um, oh God, you know what we did to God's chosen people? How awful! And and, and uh, so that people feel guilty forever. Yeah, you know, speaking <laughs> of uh, Treblinka. Um, I will uh, I will bring this up because as I was reading your book, I noticed typo that Guillermo Rudo has to be a fantastic editor because all those books are so are so clean and well done. But on page yeah, 14, absolutely. Oh, no. Reinhard Heydrich's name, his uh, first name is spelled with a T on the end, but he didn't spell it that way. You know, Reinhardt, and that's what's used for Reinhardt Camps, which was a person in the National Socialist camp system. Who was uh, who was in charge of uh, the money and so on and collecting collecting all the goods from from the Jews who were being transported across the border into uh, into Russia. That's that what those camps were all about. And they call them the Reinhardt camps. And then they say it's because of uh, Reinhard Heydrich because he was he was in charge of all the death camps and so on. See and so uh, but that's an error there. It should that T shouldn't be there. Not too, right. Uh, that's another issue that I don't want to uh, make you go into. That's quite complicated, isn't yes. it, of, of what, what the Reinhardt camps yeah. allude to. Yeah. But I think that uh, Carlo Matonio has written about the program for collecting mm. uh, the goods of the Jews uh, who were being uh, finally deported all the way out of the, of the German occupied. Mm. But I think at the same time he has uh, accepted that, that they were named after Heydrich. I disagree with that myself, but I, I haven't had the time or anything to. Uh, well, I think it's, uh, it's not entirely clear what, uh, quite hard to say what the Reinhardt operation was, but uh, let me just say this, that Forison, uh, uh, Forison went to the, around that Treblinka area, and he talked with a farmer who said he was there during the war, and who gave him some recollections, and one of them was that, uh, they used to go up to the door of the uh, camp and, and, and exchange food and stuff for um, things like jewellery and stuff, or, or you know, bits of bric-a-brac and trinkets that the that the inmates had. Uh, and um, so it doesn't sound as if they got frisked by the Germans to relieve them of all their jewellery. You know, uh, his memory was that uh, they used to trade uh, food and stuff. Right. Uh, well, uh, I, 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 yeah, camp. I, 
familiar with that too, but I wasn't thinking about it along those lines so much. So that's very good. And, and I agree that probably uh, they didn't take everything from them. They, 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 they were transporting all kinds of furniture of theirs and so on into these uh, into these areas where they were going. Yeah, I mean, the amount of staff at Treblinka was so small, the German staff and various other workers, that I don't really see how they could have done anything against the will of the inmates or anything to annoy the inmates. I would think the, yeah. the staff president but there was, was a just... program, I guess, before, before they got that far, you know, before they left, they couldn't take everything. So whatever no. they didn't take, uh, the Germans uh, took hold of. And supposedly, and this man, Reinhardt, was in charge of uh, that program and seeing that it all went to the right. It didn't go into anybody's hands. You know, there was no corruption. Nobody was going to be able to steal it or, or send it to right. relatives or whatever. Yeah. And so yeah. it was all part of what the Reich needed and mainly to keep going and to keep fighting the war. And so Yeah. The... the, the, the the Reinhardt operation referred to three camps. All the books are absolutely clear. It referred to these three camps, Treblinka, Sobibor, and Lublin, okay? Uh, uh, and um, what, what got confusing was when the, um, this Hotel Telegram, sorry, it's a bit technical, but the Hotel Telegram then appeared, right? Everyone was talking about it. And that had four camps. It threw in Maginek as well, which isn't at all on the eastern border of Poland. And... Um, that doesn't really make sense. Imagine it wasn't just a transit camp like the others. It was a labour camp. What was it not? And uh, and so Hottel's numbers didn't add up at all because he'd got an extra camp. He'd thrown an extra camp and claimed that was part of this um, part of this operation. And I think a lot of the confusion came because people accept the Hottel telling them was valid, which I don't think they should. I think it's a rather dodgy item. There's even did, did a possibility. Did the Hair report come first, and then the the Hufflet yes. program. Yes. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, Karen. You're absolutely right. The Core Hair report, I think, is authentic, mm -hmm. and that has a big number of Jews who go eastward, 1.2 million or something. And Hufflet exactly, exactly quoted that number uh, at a particular point. I think it was January 43 or something. Uh, total, his total number, the Core Hair report, and Hufflet uh, quoted that. But it threw in an extra labour camp, it had four instead of three. So uh, I have an appendix when I look at this, and uh, I'm, I'm not really happy that that, it, uh, that that telegram made a lot of sense. And it's even possible some people think that it was put in to the British decrets uh, a few years before it was released, possibly by um, an American American intelligence got to look at these decrypts, had them for some years before they were released here in England. Um, so there was even a, a slight possibility that it may, they may not be authentic at all. Well, and then when you read the... Uh, I did some work on this, too. And when, when you look at the Corhair report, the full total one in German, and it translated it, you know, and translated it into English and so on, uh, right. that uh, it doesn't say... It doesn't really say the things that David Cole implies that it says. He... You know, he, t he interprets it. And then he, he says that there's absolutely no other way to look at it. It's right there. It's the only way to look at it. Mm. But uh, mm. it's not the only way to look at it. And in fact, it's not even uh, the best way to look at it. So these yeah. are cut and dried or, or slam dunk mm. yet, these two. Yeah. I totally agree, yeah. And I, I wonder possibly David Cole's a bit kind of alone. That's the impression he gives in his evaluation of things. Yeah. I mean, for me, 
having a group, a British group, that you could consult people and you actually met, that was really vital for um, for my book, being able to do a book. And then, even I've done it, having go my Rudolph corrector, it goes through the whole damn thing and corrects stuff. Uh, I mean, you need to have something where it's to and fro with a group of you, I, I think. And I think David Cole might have written it all rather by himself and, and got muddled up over this. As you say, that, that, that Colehair report um, is, is, is a statistical account of people, different people, including Jews, moving eastwards. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 and, and that is their account at the beginning of 43, uh, as, as the, the Reich requested, you know, wanted some, uh, and that's what it is. Uh, and and um, uh, I, I would have thought that uh, these transit camps are, are interpreted very straightforwardly in these terms. But you know what, uh, Caroline, um, do you think the problem is that what we're saying now is, in a way, relatively un uninteresting. It's just statistics of people moving eastwards, okay? And people prefer to have a terrifically exciting drama of, of big gas chambers and, and I was the last Jew in Treblinka or something and, and oh, these, and the terrific polarity of good and evil it's so exciting, you know, the wicked Nazis and the good Jews. Do you think people just want that sort of drama? Well, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you there and that's our problem. As, as I was kind of referring to earlier, human nature, we've got this problem with human beings uh, not really valuing truth that much as they do what fits somehow into what they think happened, what they've been brought up with, what they're comfortable with, what their biases are, what their political views are, um, their people they are, are hang out with, and, and so on, all, all that big role. They're not scientific in trying to look at evidence and weigh things back and forth by the factual information. Well, I'm convinced there's nothing more important than getting proper history so intact in and who's in control of the historical narrative as if that is somehow there's a terrific struggle of finding the real history uh, and the process of the enslavement of the human race or however you want to look at it evolves uh, d distorting that past so somehow and, and uh, protecting our history is, is uh, I guess that's something revisionists do. Um, that's right, revisionists care about the truth of history. And uh, mm. I just find that exceptionally noble and what I agree with. And again, I would like to say, too, that w what would we do without Germar Rudolph? You know, he has been responsible for knowing so much about uh, the facts and where everything is and how things happen that we know uh, I've gone to him and asked him about things. And I've also yeah, asked right. Carlo Matonio about things, but I don't have as easy access to Carlo Matonio. I don't like to bother him. But, you know, it's, no, no, right. it's, uh, it, it's just that uh, Germar Rudolph, though, has, has played in the background, sort of, uh, such a huge role in uh, mm. keeping the revisionist movement moving along. He's very committed to it. Oh, gotcha, that's right. Yeah, it's wonderful having him as a publisher, and it gives me confidence that um, nearly everything in the book is correct. As you say, I misspelled some. Well, he didn't. Everything that you cover everything about Holocaust in the book, and you do it in such 
in, uh, well, let me say, entertaining way. It certainly entertained me in that uh, I found uh, your your manner of writing and your your tongue-in-cheek type of uh, approach to so many things quite amuse, quite enjoyable. You know, I of course enjoy. Oh right, I'm surprised. I had another friend who told me. His book, my book was amusing. It was making him laugh. I was quite surprised at that. You know. Oh, yeah, and that, that lightens things up. Now some people might pass by them. I don't know, but it doesn't matter because you're not you're not saying anything that's not true. You're just putting it in such a way. So you're a very clever guy. You have a good sense of humor. You're you're good natured. I can tell from that. And and anything I've ever heard you speaking is very clear. How fair-minded you are. You don't have any gripes about anybody. You don't. You don't uh, don't have any hates in you about any group, and quite open to everyone, and that's what comes through in this book. And yet, all the facts and all the truth point absolutely to that the Holocaust is, uh, well, <clears throat> would you call it a hoax? A hoax? Well, obviously. Well, I would call it the greatest lie ever told. Okay. Uh, I mean, there are three aspects of, as you know, welfare. Three aspects. One is that there was an intention to exterminate a particular ethnic group. Secondly, that they did it by big gas chambers mainly, and thirdly, that they did in six million of them. And there's no truth whatsoever in any of those three propositions. Absolutely no truth. And as such, it is this monumental, awesome, greatest lie ever told. And we have the thrill of living at the time when that that is disintegrating, the disintegration of that monster lie. Uh, and, and so that is a very exciting time to be around. And the world will change. The world will change as that disintegrates uh, and as we're free from its baleful influence. Do you think, um, and it, uh, it leads us to where we have to ask, don't people have to ask, when they, if they realize even partly what you're saying, uh, why people want to keep this in place? Who's holding this in place and why? What's the purpose of doing so? Well, that is one of those vast questions. We live in a wall-maker civilization. When making war and getting the population to believe in war is the primary primary requirement. This is the horror of the culture that we live in. It's not a culture that wants or celebrates peace. And, and the Holocaust, because it was irrational, six million Jews were killed for no reason. Okay, mm -hmm. because it's irrational, it can be invoked any time, um, anywhere you want it. The um, a, a politician can say, "Oh, look, if we want to avoid another Holocaust, we better do this or we better do that." And, and, um, and for goodness sake, we've got to teach everyone about the Holocaust or, or else such and such might happen. And uh, so it's a convenient manipulative tool for politicians who want war because it, it teaches you who to hate. At a very early age, kids at school are taught to hate Germans. And this is one of the most frightful things it does. And uh, what I find mysterious <coughs> is that in our culture today, the hatred of, you know, Nazi Nazi, that is somehow kept alive, even though the war ended, what, 70 years ago. Um, and the other enemies, like the communists or the, or the Muslims, are not hated nearly as much. There isn't nearly such intense hate. Um, so somehow, whatever the, the magic spell is, it, it keeps that hate against the Nazis. I don't know what it's like in America, but um, th th there's the feeling that it, that it might reappear at any moment. And that... Um, You've got to keep a lookout for anyone who might be a Nazi, um, and, and that is useful for a politician who wants to start the next war because that they can um, they can manipulate your deep fears. 
Uh, you may think, well, why can't we spend the money on something a bit more interesting or entertaining, you know, like health or education? Um, why do we want to spend it on war? Uh, and uh, the, the Holocaust does that because it, it, at its core is nightmare horror. It, it, the core of the belief is the nightmare horror delusion that all the world has to believe in. And uh, th that has the effect of destroying people's belief in the innate goodness of man and replacing it with a philosophy of, you know, who is the enemy, who are we going to fight next sort of thing. And so there's that horrible manipulation and uh, in turn this helps to, helps to make sure that the worst type of people get elected as politicians. Well, yeah, that's very good, you see, and you say it comes down, what I hear, it comes down to war making, um, and war making is profit and power. First I thought of it was profitable. They want to, why do, why do they want to make war? Because there's more money in it. That's what it's serving. If maybe if we could get some people to understand that the Holocaust is not serving, preventing bad things from happen, happening in the future, mm -hmm. it's serving continuing to have the worst things Yeah, happen. it is. Totally, yeah, yeah. But that seems to be, if I can tell you, that is function. It's a supreme sacred myth of the modern world. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but it also has the implication that for any politically, political radical person who wants to improve the world and change the world, the most important thing to do is not going on a march or shouting or whatever, but it's a perception of truth. That is the most difficult thing, and, and it's what we need most. People who have got insight can see what is real and can see through the illusions and the hype that are given and uh, demand real education, which um, which can look at the people responsible for starting the wars and the untruths that they generate. You know, we need people, need kids to be taught how the uh, wars are started through people drumming up these horrible illusions and hate images. And um, the Holocaust is a kind of supreme example of that. Although, although it was, <coughs> sorry, it was, it was produced retrospectively at the end of the war for the purpose that the victorious allies could walk away with the moral high ground. You know, they didn't have to say, oh no, look, we just dropped two million tons of bombs on Central Europe, mainly Germany. This is the greatest crime ever conceived by the mind of man. They didn't have to say that. They could just miss that out. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, we know, we don't need to mention that. Um, and, and they had this Nuremberg trial, which is an outrageous travesty of justice. I mean, a lot of people are just realizing this now. All my life, I, you know, I was brought up, I think Nuremberg was some great post-war operation of justice. And we weren't told that the Nazis were all tortured and had their testicles smashed in and everything in order to make them confess to something which never existed. We, we weren't told that, you know. And especially we weren't told that uh, at the time when this alleged fake Holocaust uh, was being narrated at Nuremberg uh, about German death camps, the real death camp was actually being managed by Eisenhower with over a million German soldiers had surrendered and they were out in fields without any food or, or shelter, that left to die, deliberately left to die. And that was the real death camp, wasn't yes, it? Yes, and you know, they were they were totally... Perplexed. I mean, they couldn't even, those men who that was done to, they couldn't get their minds around it. They couldn't understand why this was happening. Uh, they, they had wanted to come west so that they wouldn't have to be, wouldn't have to surrender to the 
to the Russians, to the Soviets, yeah. and so on. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they never, Germans, even the higher-ups, never expected the treatment that they got from the Allies. It was worse than they had even dreamed of. So it was yeah. quite amazing. These, these people in these Rhineland camps were just uh, uh, shocked, you know, at, that nobody was going to bring them any food and that the rains came down and this happened and that and they were dying and nobody did anything mm. about it. Well, in fact, in fact, they prevented it. They did it, prevent it, it because people wanted to do something. Any, and, and so here you have just what, you know, I'll just reiterate this real quickly that you have these, this, like you said, it was at the end of it, at the end of the war that they really put this whole thing together. It may have just kept growing as they were going along, but they did it to, to uh, cover up their own crimes and not have to be culpable and to blame it all on the Germans and make the Germans out to be so bad that nobody would really complain about it. Well, they deserve it. And that's what so many people believe today. They do, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and it's just amazing that, that when that monster untruth has been concocted at Nuremberg, that this death camp was actually there at the same time, uh, uh, which it didn't need to be talked about. Of course, that didn't need to be talked about. That wasn't on the agenda. Um, just as bombing and incinerating the middle European cities was not on the agenda. Uh, and instead you got this bogus story that they would just show a can of Zyklon, right, at Nuremberg, and just showing a can of Zyklon, and for me this is the most amazing thing, uh, could indicate a lethal meaning, you know, that indicated fiendish intention to exterminate people. And, and, and there was nobody around to say, hang on, we just used that, just as it says on the tin, just as we're supposed to use it for the lousing mattresses, that's what, and it saved lives, it didn't take them, it saved lives. That that wasn't on the agenda at Nuremberg, that that was somehow blocked out. So, so it means that post-war we entered into a very extraordinary culture of untruth, culture based on untruth, um, in which official fabricated lies were, had this enormous meaning, or enormous influence. Well, I want to thank you so much for your book. Breaking the spell, Nick, and I think uh, you're right that we are making progress, that, that things that will move uh, in the right direction and truth will be uh, accepted by more and more people. And when, when Well, we, we've got to believe that, haven't we? We've got to believe that. Well, yeah. we do, and, mm-hmm. and you are a very good writer, and uh, so this book is just extremely welcome. And I just recommend that people buy it and read it and keep it and pass it on and encourage other people to read it because... It's very, very readable, mm. and it's very clear. Oh, thanks, Caroline. Yeah, thanks for the encouragement. You've done a great job. <laughs> okay. Okay, Nick, I want to thank you again very much, and uh, I'm sure the audience is uh, thanking you, too. Well, it's very, very it's great to um, talk with you, Caroline, and um, I hope to come back again sometime. All right, very good. We will do it again and further work out these issues. That was Nick Kohlerstrom, ladies and gentlemen, the author of Breaking the Spell. And this has been the Heretics Hour on Monday, May 4th, 2015. I'm Carolyn Yeager, and I will see you next week when I will be having another author of a new book. This is Warren B. Routledge, who has written a new unauthorized biography of Ellie Wiesel. So you can imagine that he and I will have a lot to talk about. I hope to see you then, and until then, good night.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.